Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hello everyone, I'm Danny Kelly and I'm your host for The View from the Lane, The Athletics at Tottenham Hotspur podcast. On the show with me today, I'm delighted to say, are the Athletics' Jack Pitbrook and Charlie Eccleshare. We're now in the middle of yet another international break, so it's going to bring you a mailbag special on today's podcast, answering questions posted by our subscribers to The Athletic. Let's start off with a very important question, and it may take up the whole podcast, I'm not certain. It comes from Tom P, who has gone straight in, both feet up, studs showing. What is your favourite Tottenham stroke North London pub? My favourite North London pub is the Salisbury on Green Lanes, kind of halfway between Manor House and Turnpike Lane tube stations. I think it's the best pub in London. It's also not that hard to get to from White Hart Lane. So you just walk, walk down the road towards Bruce Grove Station and take the 341 bus, which kind of goes sort of southwest towards towards Haringey. Uh, the Salisbury's amazing. It's it's a kind of big Victorian building on a corner. It's beautiful inside. Mm. It's uh, it's kind of big, but still cosy. You know, it doesn't feel like a big kind of aircraft hangar. And uh, they have great beers. And it's just, a, yeah, it's a very special place. So I would say that is... My, my, my favourite pub near White Hart Lane is probably the Antwerp Arms. It's kind of community-owned, and it has a nice bit of grass outside you can sit on in a back garden. But yeah, in the kind of broader vicinity of North London, I'd say the Salisbury. Yeah, no, I mean, the thing is, for me, going to Spurs games, there's not normally that much opportunity because of, you know, you're having to stick around and do all of that. But I used to live in Finsbury Park, which is vaguely closed. There are lots of good pubs there. Um, one I really like is the Brownswood, uh, which is a bit smaller and kind of more hidden away. I, I prefer that to the ones... Um, although there are lots of nice ones in Stroud Green as well, Stroud Green Road. Yeah, well, if you, and if you stand outside the Brownswood and look to your left, you can see that edifice that used to belong to the water board. And I've often stood in the Brownswood and thought, how drunk am I? I can see a castle in the middle of London. But in yeah. fact, it's one of those waterworks um, follies that they built in Victorian times. That whole area does feel quite strange. Like, there's a lot around there that you wouldn't necessarily think is in Finsbury Park. It's really nice, quite like hidden gems around there. Yeah, yeah, they're just a bit kind of arsenally though. Like this, maybe yeah, yeah. It's, it's probably too say, much. I was going to say the Bank of Friendship on Blackstock Road, but that uh, is an entirely which, Arsenal pub, which is which is fantastic, but maybe slightly too close to the Emirates for some of our listeners. No, well, I just mm. have to put up with that because obviously I was brought up in that area, and it says Tottenham Stroke North London pubs. And my favourite pub um, from when when I lived at the at, at the Angel. Um, until you know the last three years when I moved here, where incidentally the pubs are amazing. Um, you can still uh, to go if I go into Doyle's in Gregna Manor, uh, you have to walk through their shop where you can buy rat poison and shotgun cartridges on your way to get your pint. <laughs> the, the the Red Lion is a, a theatre pub. Uh, my dears, it's mm. a theatre pub in Islington. 
I love the Red Lion because you have a, some locals still go in there, plus all the kind of hipsters you'd expect because they often have people playing ska discos. But of course, the little theatre goes on upstairs. So at about half past nine, there's a sudden influx from upstairs of often very well-dressed middle-class women just suddenly appear out of nowhere, discuss, discuss the, the play over a, uh, over a glass of, uh, of a Prosecco and then all disappear again. There's the King's Head as well, which is a similar sort of um, vibe. And that does. That's even more um, bohemian, isn't it? That's opera. That's yeah. a lot of opera. So, also, the Charles Lamb is a really nice little mm. pub. Yeah. Um, In Elia ju- Street. Just, exactly, yeah, just off Upper Street. Very mm. nice. Now, this, this is not probably for this podcast, but my old, my old house, if you go into the top floor, it looks straight out onto the Charles Lamb. I was, very, I was blessed for pubs in that area. That's an amazing amazing part of London yeah if I just finish back before we get on to the football um, before, just before I left I was having a drink in the, in, the, in, the, in the aforementioned red line and it all kicked off there was a kerfuffle I turned around and it was a geezer of, cert, of a, a certain age you know and this is me talking um, he must have been in, in his late 60s early 70s and he was really starting a, a row and he had a walking stick and he was lashing out with his walking stick and the pl- police were called and all the rest of it and suddenly he was thrown out of the pub out onto the pavement, and I saw him stumble, so I thought I'd better just go out and see and check this fella's all right. Got outside, the police had arrived, the ambulance had arrived, they were all trying to, to help this fella who was lying on the floor, but he was now lying on the floor and lashing out everyone's ankles with his, <laughs> with his walking stick. He was having none of it. And that, that, that's, that sort of stuff happens in the pubs in Islington, and is the reason why I like them so much. Tom, I think that's been a completely discursive and inadequate answer to your question. Um, let's get on with the football. Listen, thank you incidentally for asking about that. And if I was, the, the thing is, uh, Tom, if I was going to Spurs, it's not really about the uh, drinking for me. It's getting, as my superbly upholstered shape may attest, it's getting to the, into the queue for the Chick King directly opposite the hmm. ground, isn't it? It's amazing how long those queues still are. You know, I, I kind of assumed that with the new stadium, they'd sell so much food inside that no. it would really undercut Chick King mm. and the other places on the, on the main road. But the... I know this from the, the last few games I've been to. I've been really surprised by how long the queues are, which really goes to show the loyalty of the of the Chit King. I remember, yeah, I spoke to the Chit King. Makes ah. that, like the the actual king, the yeah. the monarch himself. No, but um, went last year for a for a piece on kind of a year of the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, and it was around the time of the pandemic so I was talking about it but we we did talk about exactly that Jack the fact that when the um, when the stadium opened how much of a threat that would be and I think they feared as well and a lot of the businesses feared that you know because the whole point of the stadium is to get people in as early as possible Chick King the, Chick King yeah so well done the Chick King we salute you right let's get on with the football questions then oh John F you've really started at the top here uh, I'm going to have to think about this. If you could add just one Premier League player to this squad, who would it be? Charlie? Yeah, I really like this question. Um, I mean, it, it's hard. Having just had the weekend we've got, tempting to say someone like Salah, and then you think Salah, Kane and Son would be potentially a title-winning front three. I mean, I know that mm-hmm. what is before it maybe wouldn't be up to that but I think I would go Kevin De Bruyne um, just because it feels like he's in that elite bracket of probably the top three or four or five players in the Premier League and he's also so what um, this Spurs team need you know someone who can really link things between midfield and attack but also he's just completely world class so I think 
De Bruyne would be my answer. I'm actually going to go for a different a different city creative midfielder and say Bernardo Silva. Wow. I was thinking about this and Tottenham would need someone who works in that system and who they could get a lot of running out of in midfield as well as creativity. And while De Bruyne is obviously amazing, I think I don't think he's quite, he doesn't look as fit and sharp right now to me as Silva does. I don't know if that's just because of how many games he's played or the injuries that you know that he picked up in the Champions League final in the Euros. Uh, but I just think Bernardo has, you know, Bernardo's obviously younger than De Bruyne, will probably go on for a bit longer. And I think Bernardo has this amazing kind of, in- he has more intensity without the ball now than De Bruyne does. So I'd say Bernardo Silva, although obviously De Bruyne would be good. <laughs> you take De Bruyne. This is this is fantastic, isn't it? Because all three of us are going for Manchester City players. Um, oh, God. Which, which, of course, reflects the way of the world. If Spurs could just be stable defensively, so Ruben Diaz would be my choice. Um, wow. Interesting that you know he's already been starting to wear the, the armband when certain other players are out of the team. Van Dijk is probably still a slightly better defender, but he is you know he's getting on a little bit, and the, and that injury he had will yet to see what the long term effect has been on that. It's a shame, of course, because he was imperious and. You know, Diaz can pass the ball, but all Manchester City's players can, including the goalkeeper, by the way. What about that 70-yard <laughs> pass, pass last weekend? Yeah. Um, but Diaz is quite happy uh, to give it to more technically gifted players if he has to. Um, and so I'd, I'd shore up the defence. I hope that, that answers your question, John. And uh, what we actually need to do, therefore, it seems to me, is to stop supporting Spurs and support Manchester City so we could all get all those great players into, <laughs> into our team. If only Spurs had a player that Man City really wanted, maybe they could offer him and they could do some sort of exchange thing. I don't know. Is that has that been? Bernardo was one of the players who City offered to Spurs. He was, yeah. in the summer, uh, but obviously, you know, it was never really going to work out under different circumstances. It would be amazing to to see Bernardo ripping things up for Spurs. The other obvious, really, really obvious answer to this is Kante. I just think yeah. because of the way, because of the way that Nuno wants that much running from the midfield. There is no one better at that job in the world than, than Kante, and he would be fantastic in the system. And I want to offer my apologies here to Adama Traore, who I know listens to this podcast and I'm sure would have been expecting me, given I go on and on and on about him, uh, to pick him. Adama, I just need to show up that defence. You can come in through the back door in the <laughs> next transfer window. Uh, don't worry about that. Marcus F., who might be a Spurs supporter and might just be uh, a Troika, a gloater, can can all the guests forecast what they think uh, when they think Spurs will be competitive enough to challenge for the league title again? He is very much a Spurs supporter. Ah. Um, yeah, the, I I think this is interesting. It was something because I've done a written a mailbag a kind of written piece on the site as well that'll be going up Friday morning and very poor. I understand. Yes. <laughs> and this uh, yeah rival mailbag <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> And, and and there was a question along these lines there as well. I mean, the, the way I see it is basically Spurs are not going to be outspending Chelsea or the Manchester clubs anytime soon, but they will be, assuming the pandemic um, continues to be managed in a way that allows there to be fans at games, I think over the next five years, Spurs will stabilise again and be in a strong financial position. And they'll therefore be in a position where they were, I think, in the Pochettino era, where if they get their signings right and if they get their managerial appointments right, they can be competitive. So I think, you know, I would expect them that to be possible in the next two, three years. But the big question is, can they do that again? Can Levy find another Pochettino and can they get the recruitment right? Because 
They haven't, and when you're at disadvantage like they are, there's no getting away from that. Financially, they are at a disadvantage from clubs like City and Chelsea who are going to spend, who are more willing to spend than they are. You need to get those things spot on. If they can do that, then I think they can be competitive for the league in, in within the next few years. I agree with that, but I think that one of the issues is, can they do it while Kane and Son are still good? At the moment, Spurs have two world-class players, really, Kane and Son, but Kane's 28 and Son's 29. You know, they're not going to be as good as they currently are forever. And so I wonder whether Spurs can be competitive again while those two guys are still at their peak, or will they have to move on from Kane and Son maybe in three years' time and then reinvest and rebuild the team in a different way? So that's really the that's kind of the issue for me is can they can they get good in a short enough time span to still make make the most of having those two players? I mean, I'm really interested in what you both said because you both and, and I. I think I'm the only actual Spurs fan among the three of us. Um, you both there make slightly optimistic noises, I think, about the possibilities. Because I'm sure the answer to the question most people are expecting is, that will never happen. Um, you two have been brainwashed by the club. Well done. Well done indeed. But the thing is with this, like mm. things do change quickly. And it's very... I, I know it feels like a really closed shot. But you know when teams make title charges, aside from the four clubs that are currently in the top four... It is always, it's you know, it's not always the easiest thing to forecast just before. I don't think anyone was saying when Pochettino was appointed in 2014, or certainly after the start he made, that, yeah, give, you know, next season Spurs are going to be absolutely gutted that they haven't won the league and be called bottlers for not having won the league. Things change very quickly. So I just, I don't think it's out of the question. And also, as we've spoken about so many times before, those four clubs have huge advantages. And if they are operated sensibly, they will win the league or they will be competing. But clubs often aren't. They they do make big mistakes again and again and again, which allows a club like Tottenham... It, but it's a, it's a massive if. You know, it's if they get a... Basically, if they get an inspired managerial appointment and if they get the recruitment right. And those are things that have happened quite rarely. Now, I know the pandemic has, been, has bent everything through time and space. But bear in mind, and I'm backing up your point here, Charlie, bear in mind, the current champions of France are not Paris Saint-Germain. The current champions of Italy are not Juventus. The current champions of Spain are not Real Madrid or Barcelona. I was going to go on to Germany, but that then it breaks down, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. um, but you, you take my point. And I don't understand soppy. I want them to win something. And, I, and you, you've heard my speech on how difficult it is to win things if you're an English club. N- not for me, though that would be delightful. But for all those, all those younger people, most of them not in the stadium, of course. They're priced out of going to the stadium. But you know um, from people who follow me on Twitter and things like that, that there are loads and loads and loads of really young Spurs fans who've never seen them. Um, they've seen them lose lots of finals, but they've never seen them win a trophy. And I hope... Um, if it could be the Premier League, that'd be great. But actually, I'd settle for the dreaded Conference League just now for them. Thank you very much for that very difficult question, uh, Marcus. Andrew F wants to know, of the many players Spurs were linked with in the summer, and boy, were there many of those, but I suppose the same for every club, isn't it? Um, and didn't sign. Which do you think would have made the biggest impact knowing what we now know? Well, I think that... I think if you look at what Spurs are interested in this January... They're looking for another attacking player, like a kind of goal threat in that front three, which I think suggests that the feeling in the club is that this is where they missed out the most. You know, they didn't get a Dharma Traore, mm. and they could do with somebody else who scores goals in that front line. I think it, it has to be a forward. Whether you think Traore would have been the perfect fit or not, I don't know. Martinez is obviously a much kind of higher profile player, but would have been 
much, much, much more expensive in the immediate term. And would have required a complete change of system because he has to play, if he's playing with Kane, you've got two out-and-out strikers there. Yeah, and then if you throw Son in as well, that's uh, that would be quite a high-powered front three. But I think, yeah, definitely a forward player. Although I guess you could have played Martinez and Son kind of off Kane. Um, I mean, they Inter managed to make it work, didn't they, with Lukaku and Martinez last season? But they ended up really with them both pushed right up. Did yeah, they? Towards okay. the, in, the, in the last third of the season, when the, when the, the chips were down... Um, they they actually found a way to play two up front, uh, Conte, which I, it actually leads to, uh, Charlie to the. I, I always wonder when it will come back into fashion because we know, yeah. we know these things are rotating. Yeah, yeah. It will come back into fashion. What's interesting as well, just thinking about this, is when I think about what um, Spurs seem to really lack, as well as that goal, that third goal scorer. But it is that link man between midfield and attack. But the strange thing is with their squad, in theory, they've got. And Dombele, Lacelso, and Delhi, who can play that role. So you kind of think, do they need that one necessarily? But none of those three have fully convinced in that. And but but then I think who were they really linked with or yeah. interested in in the summer? And you know Thomas Auer, but he uh, sorry Hassan yeah. Auer, he he's one of these guys who he's like this generation's William Carvalho, who you feel will perennially be linked with English clubs, but I don't know if it ever actually um, ever come. But I mean that's. That's the sort of play you think could have had a big impact. But I don't think that was ever especially close to happening. I don't really have a proper answer for you here, Andrew, because so much of the summer's energy was spent thinking about keeping Kane and talking about possible replacements, Vlavic, etc. The issue is that, you know, you're linked to almost infinite footballers. Um, so I, I don't have an answer to this one and I don't mind admitting it. Well, also, I guess with what, just on this quickly, the fact well, not that... Not quickly, actually, say what you want to say. The fact that they did sign Christian Romero because mm. that kind of big name centre-back or highly highly rated centre-back has been something that has been a big preoccupation. I mean, you think of like the Milan Skriniar saga of the previous mm-hmm. summer when, you know, Hitchin was out there and Twitter was on tenterhooks, you know, looking at kind of grainy images of, of Hitchin in Milan. So... I guess that took away some of that heat because Romero is a target quite early and they got him. So there isn't the same kind of, oh, if only we'd signed a centre-back, which there has been. And as I said in the last podcast, um, so far for me, the signs are extremely good with Romero, although I do feel he's going to be a very, very Spurs player. I like that. <laughs> what the hell? Well, otherwise, why would I hope? I'm thinking follow them, you know. This is a, a much wider question. And Jordan Soloff asks on Twitter, and first of all, he says he loves the podcast, which is, Jordan, why we love you. You could do a whole show on this. What impact do you think the... <laughs> on why Jordan loves the podcast. Well, yeah, of course. Um, what impact do you think the impending uh, Saudi-led takeover of Newcastle has on Spurs in the long term? Well, let's even talk about it in the medium term. So, I think, look, obviously, Newcastle w- will be challenging Spurs, I think, in the next few years. They're a long way away from being able to compete with City and Chelsea but I think I'm sure their first thoughts will be how do we overtake Leicester, Tottenham and Arsenal outside the top four before we really break into the top four. I wouldn't be too worried as a Spurs fan for a while just because I think Newcastle are trying to build something from scratch and there's no evidence that the people you know they've got the right people making decisions or that they're going to spend money the right way or that they're going to build a particularly effective team anytime soon. I'm sure they will spend quite a lot of money but they're starting from they're starting from a very very low base, and I also think, and this is maybe not quite so related to Spurs, is that for all the hopes that new from Newcastle fans that they will be able to replicate what City did in two thousand and eight, the fact is it's a much harder marketplace to operate in now than it was 
sort of 13 years ago. There's just, the teams are a lot more entrenched. That's what Everton have found. It's very, very difficult. Everton haven't succeeded in overtaking Tottenham yet. And Everton have thrown quite a lot of money in it. They've got in Ancelotti and James Rodriguez and all that. So I think that there's enough kind of residual expertise and knowledge and good players and good good people in the kind of current top six that I don't think they're quite as vulnerable to outsiders as you might think. I'm interested in what you say there because part of that, I think I wonder if it's based on the fact that we've been told that they won't be able to go out and just throw money at the problem completely that the FFP and whatever the Premier League's version of it is called these days. If they want to um, plough, uh, 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 I nearly said plough a bus through, that would be a mixed metaphor. If they want to drive a bus through the regulations, they will. And they'll take the consequences. I, I think it's it's much more like a Newcastle will be a powerful force very quickly. I mean, for me, the question is, and I'll get Charlie's view on on the vis-a-vis Spurs, is, is one for, for, for football. I, I, I'm sorry, I'm just not yet prepared to just lie down and say that's the state of football. Its soul has been sold. It's okay for the investment arm of a misogynistic, anti-freedom regime to just just buy up a club as traditional and powerful and community-based as Newcastle United is. And of course, there'll be all the usual whitewash of investing in the local area and all the rest of it. And I, and I know Newcastle fans think, oh, you don't, you don't have this view about other things. Well, I do, and I have done, and I continue to do so. For me, the, the issue will not be how, whether Newcastle are powerful or not. Um, just what it means for English football and for, for, the, for the world. No, I think that's really, really well said. And, you know, compa- compared to that, much of the other considerations are extremely trivial. I didn't mean to trivialise them. You know, we still got to live day to day, but, you know, yeah. Go, yeah. No, no, yeah. no. I just mean that, but like what I'm about to say does feel really trivial in that context. But you think, just going back to the question of what, what, it, what impact has on Spurs in the long term, I mean, something that James Moore raised, which is an interesting point, is whether... Newcastle will be in the market in the hunt in January or in the summer for some of the players Spurs don't want, which is which is a an interesting thought. I mean, my response to that would probably be there would be a whole host of clubs queuing up, thinking you know, rubbing their hands, thinking, great, finally there's some money in the market. Can we sell <laughs> some of our players that we haven't been able to shift to Newcastle? I mean, they are going to have a lot of players being offered to them, aren't they, in January and summer, especially because they are at a point where their squad could be improved probably in all areas. Almost any Premier League player could improve their <laughs> yeah, squad. Exactly. That's not very fair on Alan San Maximan. I got, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> no. Sorry, yeah. sorry. Uh, 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 with the exception of San Maximan. It's, it's fascinating looking back at like the, the 2003 summer transfer window Chelsea had and the signings they made, then the 2008 one City made, which was slightly different because it happened obviously so late, but you know, still had time to bring in Rubinho. But I mean, Chelsea signed... You know, Glenn Johnson, Damian Duff, Ferron, Crespo. Uh, it was it was crazy. Abramovich was literally going from club to club to club um, with his wad of cash, waving it, and they were grasping like seals for a fish to get it out of his <laughs> hand. It's slightly different now. And also it'll be a January window rather than a summer one, so not quite as easy or recommended to do deals, but maybe they'll just override that. Just on this, I mean, again, this is a big topic, but, you know, why not? It's an international break. What do you think of this this idea, you know, fans, when when put to them that they're powerless and they, they can't exactly just stop watching their team, The count, but I've seen the counter made, well, you can do that. You have that choice and you can stop supporting your team and life will go on and you could support a low league team or whatever. I mean, do, do you, Danny, mm. you're, you're 
saying you know you do feel very strongly about this would you and i guess it's slightly different because you don't live locally to spurs anymore but if this were to happen and spurs Mm. were to be taken over by saudi regime or equivalent would you stop going would you boycott it would you stop supporting the team it's a really good question charlie and i'll try and answer it as honestly as i can the habits and the passions of football fans are so deeply ingrained in us the propaganda so strong the possibility of changing you know, a band I like becomes shit, I move on to another band. Sainsbury stops selling pork pies, I go to another supermarket. That's not possible um, with football. And the answer to your question is they have thrown so much rubbish at football fans over the past 30 years. The cost of going to the games, the feeling that you have no direct ownership or even power within within the club that you support has been exaggerated, illustrated, spotlit over and over again, and people still go. But I must say, on a personal level, if Spurs were taken over by a regime of which I absolutely disapproved, um, and of course I get all the arguments, oh, maybe it'll, it'll lead to them being more liberal. I would have to, I would have to cut myself off from the football club. No doubt mm. I would continue to sneak a peek at their results and all the rest of it, but my heart wouldn't be in it. Charlie. Um, and if your mm. heart's not in something, you're damaging yourself by continuing to expend emotion, brain power, money, whatever on it. No, I, I think I'd pack it in and start, start supporting Lake Norium. Yeah, I actually have, I have direct personal experience with this as someone who grew up supporting Manchester City who are now owned by Abu Dhabi. And yeah, I have very, I have very mixed feelings about it. I haven't been to a home, haven't been to a home game as a fan for coming up to six years, I think. You know, if City are playing on TV and I'm watching them, I want them to win. But I equally, I do have, you know, the same reservations that anyone would have about about the, you know, the ownership and ultimately the the purpose of the whole enterprise. So I, yeah, so I do have. I don't know if sympathy is the right word, but I do have. I do have quite a lot of empathy with Newcastle fans at the moment, just because they're being put in a very they're they're in a position which they didn't ask to be in. Their club is going to get taken over by. The club is getting taken over by, you know, one of the worst regimes in the world. And they have, you know, they're being pulled in a few different directions. It's obviously bad to see fans with, you know, the Saudi flag on on their Twitter and, you know, welcoming in MBS just in the same way that City fans having Manchester Thanks You Shape Mansour banner at City is bad, I think. It's a really, really difficult issue. And I, but one thing I do think is that is that haranguing fans to stop going is counterproductive because if we know anything about football fans, it's that they will react to that in a tribal and defensive way. Well, people generally, I mean, we've learned that, haven't we, over the last few years with the political schism. People don't like being told yeah. that what they think is wrong. And and I totally understand that. And, and I agree. I mean, I do that, you know, Newcastle fans now have a choice. You either boycott, the club and the thing you most love doing and let's not forget that for most fans it's so tied up with family and friends and routine it's such an important part of people's social routine and ritual and everything it's so much more than just going to watch a football match i think all we can really ask of newcastle fans or and i'm not really in a position to ask anything of newcastle fans but all, all i would say really is that try and go into it with your eyes open don't think that just because you're supporting your football team you're obliged to support the people that own it which I think is one of the most dispiriting things about English football really in the last 20 years. Has Absolutely. Been, whether it's Chelsea fans, Chelsea fans becoming pro-Abramovich or City fans becoming pro 
MBZ and Abu Dhabi and all the rest of it. Like it's um, that, but that all that entirely depends on whether the owners are meeting the fans' expectations. Because you see, Liverpool yeah. just as yeah. quickly, the yeah. very powerful men who might have got the pro badge actually get the anti badge just as quickly. The formulation that I try, and I know this is kind of you know some people might think it's a cop out, maybe it is, is if you can su- kind of support the team on the pitch without supporting the club off the pitch. That's the balance that I found, although I appreciate that lots of people will say, well, how can you separate the two? Because Guardiola and De Bruyne and Grealish wouldn't be there if City weren't owned by Abu Dhabi. And also you can't, if you're going to games, you are supporting them off the pitch, aren't you? Yeah, because you're giving them I mean, your money. Exactly. And, and for a lot of people, that's not a sacrifice they're willing to make, which is entirely understandable. I do think as well, just with the City comparison, it is interesting how much and it may be just because there wasn't social media in the same way I personally was probably of an age where I didn't fully understand it but it does feel the world is such a different place in 2020 in 2021 to 2008 when I don't remember the same I mean of course people raised concerns but there wasn't it wasn't in quite the same way and there wasn't quite the same uh is tribalism the right word or more kind of accusing of city telling city fans that they were wrong yeah, to like so this I think and enjoy there's it. kind of two things there one is that when this first came out, it was sold as being Sheikh Mansour, who was this kind of portrayed as being a, you know, just one guy with a lot of money in the UAE. Yeah. And it's obviously become apparent later on that, in fact, you know, it's all to do with Khaldun al-Mubarak, who is one of MBZ's main advisors. And in fact, this is kind of deeply intertwined with, with UAE foreign policy. So in that sense, everyone has learned that, in fact, it's not just one rich guy akin to a Abramovich or whoever. Yeah. Although Abramovich himself is a deeply political figure, but that's a topic for another day. I think the other thing is just, there just has been greater realisation. I think there's been greater awareness of UAE foreign policy in the context of Yemen exactly. and their alliance with Saudi Arabia and the you know, UAE and Saudi's rivalry with Qatar, which, of course, you know, was through, through the Arab Spring has been one of the big dominant themes in in the Middle East. And also the fact is that City being very good has been part of this. If City won if City hadn't won three Premier Leagues in the last four seasons, I think people would be probably slightly less attuned to mm. the reality of it. Whereas if City had been rubbish and thrown away their money and been kind of scraping around seventh or eighth, I don't think I'm not saying it would be like more or less morally bad, but I think people would oh. I think people would care less. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Okay, well, look, uh, let's get in one final, a couple of questions, actually, uh, here on The View from the lane. You're listening to Jack Pitt-Brook and uh, Charlie Eccleshow, myself, Danny Kelly. Lee J, widening out the debate about what kind of team Spurs are putting together, says, what do you, the panel, think of Parishichi's comments regarding player acquisitions being about, inverted commas, mentality first and playing style second? Uh, do you think this will please fans? And what does this mean for some of our existing players? One of the issues at Spurs in the last sort of five or six years is that the failure to refresh the squad means there just isn't really as there hasn't been as much hunger about the Spurs squad as there was sort of five years ago. You know, you can see that by the fact it was more or less the same team from about 2014 through to, through, through to about 2020. So I, I definitely think Prattigy wanted play wanted to bring in players who did have that hunger to achieve things at the start of their career. And you can see that in 
Brian Gill, uh, Romero, Gallini, Pat Matasar, who's obviously coming in next year. And this, this I think, was a, a kind of something that they really wanted to work on. And also in the in the promotions of, of Skip and Tanganga. And I think it's worked. You know, I think all, all of the players they brought in have been sp- spoken of inside the club as being very big and impressive personalities. You know, even Gallini, for example, who's not really played that much, is meant to be a kind of great figure around the dressing room and the training ground. And I just think, yeah, I definitely think a bit more hunger and energy and youth in that squad is what they were looking for. It does seem to be what they've got. Yeah, I think the mentality thing will play quite well with the fans because that's a big bugbear a lot of supporters have, that there is this idea that Spurs like leaders, uh, they like winners in inverted commas. So I, I think that's um, there is some sense in that. The issue is fans also want playing style. They also want the uh, the Tottenham way, Spurs mm-hmm. DNA and all of this sort of thing. And and Levy obviously saying that in in May only added to that sense that this is absolutely critical. So, you know, it's, it's can you have... Obviously, ideally, you have both. Um, but it does show the... The dilemma almost about what about what the priority is is it about getting kind of hard nuts in who just you know really you know have that will to win that fans want or is it about people who play the right way hopefully you know someone like brian hill i think is a good example of of hopefully having both because he looks like someone who is really strong uh mentally he looks like he's happy to get kicked he just gets back up again but he also plays in this really exciting style so hopefully he is kind of the benchmark and the paradigm for a paratici signing I don't know whether you can get this winning mentality through just putting together 11 individuals with winning mentality. Mm. And I'll, I'll tell you where I got this from. And that is, it is clear, in, when Spurs had their good team, in the 2018 World Cup, 11 of Spurs' squad made the semi-finals. Um, now, that was more than any other club in the world. Mm. I'll say that again. More than any other football club in the world, their players <laughs> made the, the latter stages of the World Cup. Because they are good footballers and have you know, the kind of mental strength to go deep into tournaments and things. Um, and they were doing it at Spurs somewhat as well. But I think at club level, where you're with each other every day, this has to be a collective thing. And I'm not sure you can just graft in three players who are thought to be mentally tough or winners and then say they will infect the others. Well, and that was the whole Mourinho thing, wasn't it? That he would infect everyone with his winning mentality. Nearly every footballer has got to some extent or other, depending on how complacent they are with their new contract, a winning mentality. Because of the sifting system, the cruel brutality of how people become professional footballers, unless you're already pretty mentally strong, you'll have been spat out by the process when you're 13, 14, 15, 16, whatever it is. But somehow you have to get the group. And whether the group responds to the manager and then takes it on themselves, as I think Leicester's team did when they won the title, or whether it's inculcated at the club as it was under Alex Ferguson at Manchester United. It's not as simple, I don't think, as just buying two or three players with winning mentality. Most players have got that because they wouldn't become professional footballers without it. I'll be interested to see where it comes from at Spurs when and if it does come. I, say, I sense it's not there, and that's not because they lose finals and semi-finals. That, you know, they're playing against, Spurs have hardly lost a big game against a bad team. They always keep running into you know, big, powerful football teams. But when you see occasionally... When Lloris comes out once every three months and makes his um, plead, uh, pleading kind of eyes to the camera, it's clear that something is missing. And of course, he's captain a World Cup winning team, um, so he knows what he's talking about. And he, it's, it's also obvious to me that he doesn't know where it's coming from. 
at Spurs. And if that's 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 a very very downbeat way to end. Well, we're well, getting we'll get something more cheerful in just a second. That's what I think. Um, Peritici, mm. it's it's the right words to say, but like so much in modern life, uh, if the words are backed up by tangible, and he said results action, then it's meaningless. Listen, before we go, and uh, thank you very much for your presence on the podcast. Remember to spread the word if you're enjoying it. By all means, tell your Spurs friends. Tell others as well. Who knows? They might just like the general tone of it. Before we go, Charlie, we should just get an update on some of the Spurs players away on international duty, and particularly the Dubrovnik Three copyright uh, jackpit Brook um, in South America. What's happening with those uh, hombres? Well... <laughs> A bit of a blow, actually. Um, oh, good. Because the Argentine, yeah, <laughs> afraid to say. Just just written a story for the Athletic on this. Um, uh, Scaloni, the Argentina manager, has come out and said they the the Lacelso and Romero will be playing the final qualifier, which takes place Friday morning UK time, and you know therefore rules them if they play in that would rule them out of the trip to Newcastle two days later on the Sunday. We, we expect the same to happen with uh, Davinson Sanchez for Colombia and Emerson Royale for Brazil. And you'll notice their Royale is also there, which makes their... It's not just a, three, a trio mm. now. It's There are four of them. So I don't know what that is, the Quito Quartet oh, or well, that something is like so that. Good. Given, yeah. <laughs> given that they're all in South America, mm. though I don't know if any of them will actually be in Ecuador at any point, but whatever, it, it, it still stands. So there there is a real risk that for that Newcastle game, they'll be without four players and... You know, Romero and Royale were really good in that Villa game. So that would be a blow, a bit, quite a big blow. And then also losing Sanchez, who would probably be Romero's replacement. And Lo Celso, uh, we've spoken about him and he divides opinion, but he is an important player in that squad. So to lose four players from the group would be pretty damaging against uh, a buoyant, potentially, Newcastle. Buoyant, is that, that, that's the word we're using for it now, is it? Um, okay, listen, thank you for that, uh, Charlie, for that um, letting the air out of our tyres right at the end of the podcast there. But listen, um, <laughs> which were already pretty flat anyway, weren't they? Oh, I've enjoyed the podcast hugely. <laughs> no, I have, I have immensely. Yeah. But um, yeah, so there's some sobering topics yeah. that we've three discussed. blokes moaning about the world. That is exactly what people want, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, there aren't enough of those podcasts. There aren't. There really should be. There must be a platform. It's a real for this niche. Sort of thing. We've carved yeah. down. <laughs> oh, listen. Um, if you're, uh, thank you both indeed, very, very much indeed. And if you're a listener, not already a subscriber, you can read all. Uh, on Spurs by going to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. And you'll also be able to ask us questions in future mailbag specials. And right now you can sign up with a 33% discount on a full subscription. We'll be back on Monday. Thanks for listening. Cheers. The Athletic.